God surely does make His glory known through the words of life that are contained in this, the Scriptures. He de- decided long ago to show us who He was through the power of His great Word. And so it would be negligent of us to gather together in worshiping the true Lord, but not put our eyes and our hearts and our minds upon His Scriptures. So right now our ushers are passing those things out right now. We've got uh, note sheets and pencils as well, if those are a, a help to your learning. Um, but we're grateful that God has given us this wonderful book so that we might not be confused about who He is, so that we might not be tempted to make up for ourselves what we think God might be or might not be. Uh, the Lord has revealed it to us, and so it doesn't have to be a mystery. With the Word, along with the uh, indwelling Holy Spirit, we have what we need to be able to understand Him and to rejoice in His goodness. We're in Hosea chapter 6 today. We're going to be getting into chapter 7 as well in just a minute. So you can open up your scripture to that passage right now. I've had a lot of jobs in my life. Um, I've been a jack of, of, of quite a few trades. And some, uh, some places that I've worked have been difficult to work at. Some places have been easy to work at. I don't know if you've ever worked in a place where it seemed that the management of that establishment always wanted something from you but was never willing to be clear about what it was. Few things are more frustrating than trying to hit a goal uh, with a blindfold on, it can be so challenging to try to do what is needed to be helpful uh, when the people who are in charge and calling the shots aren't very clear on, on what they want. <clears throat> I once actually had a professor in, in seminary who said, we're going to do things a little differently this semester. He was an adjunct uh, professor, which means he was a missionary home on leave for six months, and so they had enlisted him to teach a class at the seminary. And he said, we're going to go without a syllabus Uh, this semester. We're going to allow our students to kind of dictate the direction of where things go. We wanted to be a little bit more free and open. Uh, We want to be able to meet you where you're at in your learning. So there was no syllabus for this class. And it was one of the worst classes I've ever taken. Uh, Because as much as the syllabus can be a point of frustration in a student's life because it just glares at you and says, on this date, this will be this will be due. On this date, you're going to have to be ready for this test. And and there's going to be two projects in this this, uh, frame of time. So make sure you put aside extra time to study during that. It can be frustrating, but it's also important for you to have that roadmap of expectations. And interestingly enough, what ended up happening is the professor just didn't have his act together all that great. And so it ended up being more like a dictatorship where he would constantly be upset at us for not doing what he wanted us to do, but we were constantly frustrated because he would never tell us what he wanted us to do. So uh, we're grateful that the Lord doesn't do that to us. What he desires of his people, he clearly tells us. And so we see that here in the book of Hosea, that God does not just have random expectations of his people, that through covenant he has drawn them together into a wonderful relationship with him, and that relationship has boundaries and stipulations and requirements. So God is not being elusive. He simply tells Israel in the plainest terms what he does not want from them and what he does want from them. And so last week, you might recall God's declaration to us in chapter 6 of Hosea. It is clearly stated in chapter 6, verse 6. He says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God is what he desires rather than burnt offerings. So what does God want? He wants a true, lasting, enduring love from Israel. He wants them to put their hearts and minds upon him. God wants them to pursue a true knowledge of their God. He has gone to great lengths to reveal who He is to them. He wants them to receive that revelation 
with gratitude and with a careful and thoughtful mind. However, that is not what God is getting from Israel. He's getting empty sacrifice. He's getting the people's personal interpretation of what worship to Yahweh should be, often mixed with the opinions of what worship should be from people who don't even worship Yahweh. The Israelites who make up God's people in the north are heeding God's word just enough to give the outward appearance of devotion. But true inward devotion is largely absent from their hearts. And the verses that follow flesh out that problem, give us more clarity about what is wrong in Israel, and they also afford us some substance so that we can see what kind of things a person can expect to reap when they sow an unfaithful, shallow, hollow worship to God. It's a little confusing how chapters were divided in this section, so I want to explain my mindset here. You probably know that while the the uh, verse and chapter divisions that are a very helpful aid in your Bible. Every Bible in this room probably has chapter divisions and verse divisions. That those were not originally part of the, uh, of the text when God inspired the men to write these books of the Bible. They didn't have chapter divisions. They didn't have those little verse notations. In fact, the first Bible translation we know of to use chapter and verse divisions was the Geneva Bible of 1560. Most of the time, those who choose to number the chapters and verses of the Bible, they do an admirable job of keeping important concepts together, trying to keep flow of thought consistent and make divisions where a turn of thought occurs. But there are some instances where breaks in chapters can give us the illusion that the topic has changed and that the author's beginning a new train of thought when actually he has not. This last section of chapter 6 is actually best understood when we read it through the end of next chapter to the end of chapter 7 as one unit of thought. The way the section is arranged, we can get three clear divisions of thought within that one large concept. And so first we're going to look at verses uh, chapter 6, 7 through chapter 7, verse 1. This contains a general declaration of Israel's guilt before God. And then... The second little section is chapter 7, verses 2 through 3, where God scalds Israel for acting like he does not know the extent of their sin, when in reality, God does know the extent of their sin. They might not know the extent of their sin, but God knows it. And then the third movement of the sermon this morning, it's going to start at verse 4 in chapter 7, and we'll work to the end of that short chapter. God uses a series of three metaphors to detail three characteristics of Israel's rebelliousness and their lack of faith to Yahweh. So we're going to be in chapter 6 to start. I'll begin reading at verse 7, and then we'll read through to chapter 7, verse 1 to start. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Sheshem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed. When I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed and the evil deeds of Samaria. For they deal falsely and the thief breaks in and the bandits raid outside. Let's take a moment and thank the Lord for his word and ask for his direction as we read it together. God, we are blessed to be your children and to be under your guiding hand. Father, you never lead us astray. Father, you don't joke with us when it comes to your word. 
Now, you don't take these things lightly. You want us to know who you are and what you desire of us. And so I pray, God, that you would give, her, give us sober minds today. Help us to have a joy as we read this text, even though it is a text of judgment. Because under, underneath the, the reality that you are a God who judges sin is that, that reality of grace as well. That even those who could never fulfill your law can find forgiveness of their sin and can be at rest with you through the perfect work of Jesus Christ, God. So let us keep that in mind and help us to, to think of Christ as we read these, these verses of Scripture, Lord God, and recognize that he is the fulfillment of everything that is lacking in the Old Covenant. We're grateful for you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this first section that we just read, God continues a process that really started back in chapter 4, verse 1, when he began to build a legal case against the northern kingdom of Israel. Israel's iniquity is declared, and once again, their sin is explained in the terms of covenant breaking. Chapter 6, verse 7 tells us that just as Adam sinned in violation of a clear covenant, so has Israel. Now, do you remember the first covenant between God and man? It is recorded in the last part of Genesis 1 and the first part of Genesis 2. God creates man. So immediately we see that God rightfully holds a position of superiority over man. The one who is created is greater than the created thing. God and man are not peers. Okay? And so God existed long before man did. And if it were not for God, man never would have existed. So man owes everything to God. This this means that God has the right to dictate the terms of any kind of covenant that they might enter into together. To assure order in their interactions with one another, God immediately establishes with Adam, the first man, the terms of an official covenant, an official, thought-through, ordered relationship between God and His creation. This covenant was one with responsibilities and expectations. Adam and all who come from him will bear the image of God, which is a great and a holy honor. Uh, Adam will tend to and name the animals who live along with him in the Garden of Eden. He and the first woman, Eve, will be fruitful. They will multiply and they will fill the earth with more people. And they will exert dominion over the other creation that is, is not exalted to this place that Adam and Eve have been exalted to. They will have a delegated authority whereby the earth is under their command to a degree, God being uh, superior in dominion over them. The covenant is one with very clear promises of blessing if man obeys it. Perpetual closeness to God is the most important of those covenant promises. God also promises that everything that man needs will be provided by the generous hands of this giving and loving God. If Adam and Eve never sin, death will not be something they have to contend with. They will have eternal life with God. And very clear promises of cursing also exist in the framework of this covenant in case of disobedience. If you disobey Adam, says God, then you will surely die. A test of this disobedience was established with the inclusion of one special tree in the garden, one that Adam and Eve were forbidden to eat from, a tree that represented the ability to discern for oneself the difference between good and evil. See, man was given dominion, but that dominion was never supposed to supersede the power of God. By eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, man decided to decide for himself what good and evil was rather than trusting in the guidance of the one who had created him and had dominion over him. Now, we all know that Adam failed to pass that test. He and Eve both ate of the forbidden fruit, Eve because she was deceived by the serpent, and Adam of his own free will ate of the fruit. And so our first father and mother 
broke the terms of the covenant, and being that they were functioning as representatives for all the mankind that would come from them, Adam's sinful failure and the guilt that comes with it passed on as an inheritance to all who would come from Adam and Eve. And so Israel's sinful rebellion is nothing new as we read about it in Hosea 6. It is the course of man. It is in line with what we have come to expect of human behavior across the board. Whenever God voluntarily enters into a special covenant with mankind that requires their obedience, man has always struggled to keep the terms of the covenant. And here in chapters 6 and 7 of Hosea's prophecy, we can clearly see that the struggle has not changed. Man continues to to have a difficult time keeping the terms of what he has agreed to. What has changed is that God has no more patience for this particular part of his people, the northern tribes. Their sin has brought God to a point where he must deal with their rebellion. And so this portion of, uh, of national Israel is facing a removal from their own special covenant, the covenant that God had established with Abraham in Genesis 12. It doesn't mean the complete abrogation of the covenant because Judah still exists in the south. There is a remnant in the north who will still remain connected to that covenantal progress in the south. But to transgress the covenant is an act of clear faithlessness. It is a legal breach of contract, a shameful insult to the authority of God who deserves our worship and dedication. After striving with these lawbreakers for quite some time, God is in the process of consolidation. The national presence of Israel in the north will be cut off from the covenant, and its promises will now run through Judah, the southern kingdom. As the northern kingdom of Israel is sometimes referred to Ephraim, we read here uh, that Israel is going to be referred to now as Gilead uh, through these next few verses. Gilead is described as a city of evildoers tracked with blood. Now, interestingly enough, uh, that's not the kind of place you would want to live, is it? I just got to travel through Oakland yesterday on the way home from uh, the airport, and it kind of reminded me of Oakland a little bit, this idea of Gilead, a city city tracked with blood, a place where sin abounds. Gilead wasn't actually a city. Gilead, rather, was a region of small cities that were sometimes lumped together and considered as a a regional place to live. And, And so... God refers to Israel in these specific terms, and he does it for a reason. He could just call Israel, Israel. But the mention of specific cities, of specific tribes, of specific regions is a literary device. It's a technique which prevents this prophecy that Hosea is proclaiming from coming off as so vague that the people who read it can just assume it's to somebody else and not to them. It keeps the citizens of the north from acting as those stark warnings of the prophecy are only metaphorical or are not applicable to themselves. And so as we read on, we see that this sinful corruption exists from the top of the northern tribes to the bottom. Even the priests are eager to break the law, here being depicted as if they were predators, as if they are looking for opportunities to murder someone else for personal gain. This is not the kind of activity we expect from the people who are set aside to be holy men, directing people in the worship of Yahweh, the keeper of the covenant. And this is not to say that every single citizen has forsaken the Lord here. That's not the case. There are certainly still faithful believers among them. But the corruption is much more widespread than even the North would let themselves believe that it is. And that is key to understanding this section of Scripture that we're looking at today. The Northern Kingdom is acting as though they are not as sinful as God declares them to be. God is exposing that truth. 
He is going to leave them no self-deception in which they may hide. As God brings charges against the northern kingdom, they have the nerve to act surprised by these charges. We will see that while they have violated the terms of the covenant, they were hoping that God would either forget the sins that they had committed against him, or he will not realize that they were sins in the first place, and Israel will find themselves off the hook for the wrath that they deserve. God shakes his head no and takes the time here to line out the truth. As the judge, God doesn't have to take the time to do that. He could simply just render judgment and punish them. But it's very interesting to see that despite the fact that there is great woe and condemnation coming upon the people in the north, he takes the time through his prophet to explain the why and to show them where they erred. Why? Because God still loves those who love him in the north. And there is a sense in which some of them are not being condemned away forever, but are actually being chastised onto a greater obedience to him. God could simply determine the guilt of the kingdom if he wanted to. He could sentence them to an appropriate punishment. He could send them off. But the fact that God seeks to not only deal with Israel's sin, but also seeks to teach them through the process indicates that there are at least some in that northern kingdom that God intends to remain in fellowship with. It is in God's best interest to teach these how they got to that bad place of self-deception so that they won't wander back into it again. The use of the word harvest in verse 11 is intended to come across as ironic. And that's important to identify here. The idea of harvest typically carries very positive connotations. Harvest means that God has blessed you with a field. He has blessed you with that strength to work that field. He has blessed you with the seed to plant that field. He has blessed you with the waters that watered that field. And then now, after much waiting and patience, he has blessed you with the fruit of that field. And now you get to take that grain or those vegetables. You get to take them in. You get to use some to feed your family. You get to sell to others. You get to thrive. So harvest is usually something good. But here in verse 11, harvest is actually carrying a negative connotation. In this situation, the seeds that are being sown in the north are seeds of rebellion. The harvest of that kind of crop is not blessing, it is curses. And while Israel in the north are the focus of this prophetic writing, even Judah in verse 11 in the south is mentioned, for they are likely to reap a harvest of contingent woe because of their tendency to follow after their sisters in the north. They do not learn from the mistakes of the northern ten tribes. The next verse and a half describe the unveiling of a powerful lie. God describes himself as approaching the northern kingdom with willingness to heal them, to make them right. But when he finds, what he finds when he approaches the people is a people who are more deeply evil than they were letting on. Their iniquity keeps them from even wanting to be healed. They don't want redemption. They want their sin. Hosea writes of God in somewhat human terms here almost as if he's surprised by what he finds when he pulls back the veil and gets a good look at the reality of what is going on in the north. So a little disclaimer about that. God's never actually caught off guard or surprised ever. He's incapable of surprise. He has known all along the extent of deceptive, uh, deceptive corruption that exists in the northern kingdom. But by describing the situation in this way, as though God was coming to redeem but had to stop short of of doing that when he saw what was really there in the north, he's revealing the fact that the northern tribes have been deceptive in how they've projected their spiritual health. By describing the situation in this way, the prophet speaks in terms that we can understand. 
We know what it is like to be disappointed. We know what it is like to hope the best and discover the worst. And he wants us to know that that's his sentiment right now. At the end of Hosea 6, in the beginning of chapter 7, God describes how he would come forward to heal, how he would approach these northern tribes with the intention of restoring their fortunes. But when he draws near, their sin and their rebellion become exposed, and there's something that's very much so lacking among the people, something that is important to the process of healing and redemption, and that lacking is repentance. There is no grief over the sin in the north. There is no reality, no coming to terms with the breaking of the covenant. So what can God do? What must God do? He must punish them. He must put an end to the charade. The northern kingdom is not a healthy place. The northern kingdom is not honoring the covenant. The northern kingdom to this point is not willing to admit their iniquities and face the truth. They play dumb to the charges and act as though there is nothing wrong. Continuing in empty rituals of religious behavior, while greatly lacking the steadfast love and desire to know God that would have been there if they were truly repentant people ready for restoration. And so God is about to dispel the lie. The truth is this. The truth is that God knows. And He always knows. Verse 2. But they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face By their evil, they make the king glad and the princes by their treachery. I remember all of their evil, declares the Lord. You see, there is no violation against God's law that goes unnoticed and overlooked. We can rest assured of this because God is a unique kind of judge on account of his omniscient character. Omniscience is one of the very rare and and in fact exclusive characteristics that only the triune God can have. To be omniscient is to know all things, to never have to wonder about anything. And it is a characteristic that is so different than our understanding of truth and knowledge and wisdom that we can hardly put a grasp upon what it means that God knows all things. But listen to how the scripture describes this characteristic of our amazing God. In John 3.20, it says, Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. He knows everything. There is no fact, no detail, whether great or small, that the Lord God does not have a conscience awareness of. Psalm 147.5, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. That speaks of His omnipotence. He lacks no strength. But the second part of this verse says His understanding is beyond measure. So not as He limitless in power and strength, but God is limitless in what He knows. There is a reason why it was very foolish for Adam and Eve to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They wanted to know what only God can know because only God is omniscient. Our best efforts at knowing good and evil will always fall short unless we trust on the better judgment of a God who knows all things because our hope to know what is good and evil is so limited by the fact that we only know what we see. We only know what we gain through our senses. That is not so with God. He has always known all things and he will never forget anything that he knows. Psalm 139, 4. This is a portion of the scripture that was read earlier for our call to worship. Thank you, Stephen, for doing that. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. We see here that 
God's omniscience is not only concerning things that come to pass. God does not know what can be seen and nothing more. God even knows the things that you conceptualize in your mind before they are manifest. God knows the desires of your heart. He can put into words the feelings that you're having even when you struggle to think them through in a clear enough language that you might understand your feelings. God knows. He knows all. And he knows our sin. We should expect perfect justice from a perfect judge. In our justice system in America, we have a clause known as a statute of limitations, don't we? Certain laws in our nation have, in a sense, an expiration date for justice to be done. After so many years when a crime is committed or somebody has broken a law, after so many years, some laws in our land pass off the books. A person can no longer be prosecuted for those laws. They are essentially forgotten in a legal sense. This is due to a few reasons. First of all, it's due to man's limited ability to seek facts in cases that become very cold. So it would be futile for men to try to go and figure out whether or not somebody committed fraud, for instance, 55 years ago, when all of the records that would have been essential evidence to determine the guiltiness or the innocence of that accused party have probably all gone into the garbage by now. And so there are just limits on what we can do in investigating whether somebody's innocent or guilty. The second reason is the, the sheer volume of cases that have, have to be sorted out and solved in our society it means that we don't have the time to pursue everything that happened 50 or 20 or 30 years ago. And secondly, or thirdly, our adherence to due process in this state means that, uh, that everyone is due to uh, a proper trial and if you try to commit somebody of a crime that happened 50 years ago, then the witnesses that might stand up and testify for them are, are probably some of them passed away by now. And so they try to take that into consideration when they consider the length of, of time to prosecute. Violent and serious crimes in the U.S. don't typically have a statute of limitations. Um, there are many laws that are important enough that even if you did it 100 years ago, you need to, you need to handle it. You need to be dealt with. But... In America, many laws uh, have an expiration date. There's no such restriction on a perfect God because a perfect God never runs out of energy to seek the truth. A perfect God knows perfectly. He doesn't lose evidence. He can judge precisely and he can judge fully. Even our minds are not off limits to him. How can we think that God can somehow be unaware of our actions if he even knows the thoughts of our heart before we think them. And yet the northern kingdom has convinced themselves that they're not as bad as God declares them to be. Despite the fact that God knows all, the people of, of Israel in the north are foolishly more concerned with impressing earthly kings, according to verse uh, 2 here, than, heaven, than the heavenly king. They would rather conduct themselves in such a way that they live according to the expectations of the neighboring rulers in nations to, uh, adjacent to Israel, when in reality, the King of kings and the Lord of lords dwells among them. To give them a sample of what God sees when he looks right past all of their lies, God shares with them a series of three metaphors that describe the kind of iniquities the north is guilty of. The first metaphor that we see is a metaphor of raging ovens. The north is like a, a raging oven uh, that Israel is given into its vile passions. It has gotten so caught up with its anger and its lust for things that it desires 
that its, its passions have become an all-consuming fire. So we see this in Hosea 7, verses 4 through 10. They are all adulterers. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes become sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers. For with hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue. All night their anger smolders. In the morning it blazes like a flaming, blaze, a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it is not, or he, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, and yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all of this. The meta- then listen closely to the gospel, my sister. Listen closely to the word preached. The metaphor of the oven here is used to describe a fire that is burning so hot and unhindered that it isn't any good at all for cooking. Fire, you see, is a tool that can be harnessed for good, but allowed to burn out of control. All of its utility is lost, and suddenly, instead of a tool to be used, it is now a terrible danger to anyone who is around it. As residents of California, we are learning this lesson on a yearly loop, it seems now. Every year, as fires get more and more serious with the drought that has raged on in, in California. Uh, when a blaze begins, my prayer is immediately that they'll catch it quickly and they'll be able to put it out because fire out of control does such damage and destruction to our state. The oven that Hosea likely has in mind as he writes would have been a hard clay cylinder that's partially sunk into the ground and it has two different levels on it. On the base level, the cylinder contains the fuel for the fire, pieces of wood that eventually turn into hot glowing embers and on the second level of this cylinder is a flat place where uh, dough can be laid down and bread can be cooked passions and angers cause the people to lift up their head against the king and this of course could refer to the beginning of the northern kingdom born when Jeroboam peels off from Rehoboam in anger at the policies that Solomon's son had enacted we've talked about that some in the weeks uh, preceding this one but it likely describes a broader historical track record of the people in the north rising up in passionate anger against their leaders. Often the princes even join in the discontent and seek to displace uh, the rulers, even if it's their fathers. Usually a, a fire of this kind put into an oven of this sort would have to be tended to. It would have to be stoked. You'd have to add fuel to it. You'd have to introduce air into that that mixture of coals, because without air it would begin to stifle and, and become more cool. But the passions of Israel are so intense that the baker doesn't even have to bother with tending to the coals. The fire just continues to get hotter and hotter. It rages unchecked. And this fire, this hatred, this passion, this, this desire and this greed is causing the people in the north to destroy one another. This destruction might refer in part to Pekah's rebellion, which you can read about in 2 Kings 15 if you have time. It might refer to the final run of kings that happens just before Assyria comes in and takes over the northern kingdom. There were a series of assassinations and brief stints of leadership, but the people were so discontent that they constantly wanted something different and they continued to, to push aside their kings or put them to death. The prophet extends the metaphor to identify a second theme within this theme, if Israel is a cake, its ingredients 
are not purified, but they are rather defiled. They are spoken of as being mixed with the nations around them. The culture and the practices of the pagan peoples who are not a part of the covenant with Yahweh have begun to rub off on Israel to such an extent that they no longer look like a set-apart people. They've just been mixed in with the leaven of sin that defines the people around them. And this cake is said to be left on the fire. It burns on one side and it's uncooked on the other. It's not worth eating. There's nothing useful about a cake cooked like that. Because there is no attention paid to the passions, the people in the north are struggling and they are beginning to reap what they have sown in their hatred. Passion defined by anger also has a blinding effect on us, doesn't it? Our passions can eskew our discernment. They can leave us vulnerable to manipulation. Those who are discontent and angry in the north have at times been skillfully harnessed by other nations who intend to exploit uh, Israel's anger and use it against them. I, we, my wife and I noticed this um, during the course of, of, of adopting our daughter, Rosie, uh, you can find at any given day during adoption court at the court in Walnut Creek, a group of individuals outside picketing and trying to rile up the parents there. Uh, there's, there's a lot of sadness that has to go with family court. Many times people who really are struggling with addiction problems continue to find themselves um, called by CPS. Many of them lose their children because even if they want to take care of their children, they, are, they don't have the capacity to control their sin. And so something has to be done to intervene and, and care for those children and put them in homes where they'll be protected and properly looked after. But those parents who have lost children often feel a great bitterness and anger towards the state. Now, I think a lot of that bitterness and anger is probably towards themselves and their inability to walk in the law as they know that they should. Apart from Christ, we cannot keep the law, and they're seeing that firsthand. So there's a group of make-believe attorneys that like to go out in front of the, uh, the family court and they convince these individuals that there's great conspiracies in the state of California to try to steal children away to fund or to raise funds for the adoption system and the, and, the, and the foster care system. And even though it doesn't make any sense, foster care costs our state a tremendous amount of dollars. It is not a money-making proposition for the state. The people who are there and who are losing their children and don't want to go to rehab and are so angry that they're being told they can't do what they want to do, they often buy this hook, line, and sinker. And then they give money to this organization who then says they'll represent them in the courts. And it's, it's a terrible organization because it's exploiting the, the anger and the illogical thinking of a very vulnerable people who are at a difficult place in life. And this has happened in Israel to an extent where nations such as Assyria and neighboring Egypt have seen the unrest in Israel and have exploited that for their own good. They've used that hatred to knock kings off of, uh, off of, off of thrones and to, to create great unrest so that the north would be an ununified people and would be easier to conquer. This intemperate lack of control is only the first metaphor that the prophet makes use of here in chapter 7. Another sin that the North pretends that it is not guilty of uh, is ignorant foolishness. The metaphor of the silly dove reveals that Israel has acted in this ignorant foolishness. They have refused to know the truth and to abide by it. Starting in verse 11, Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like birds of the heavens. 
I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them. You hear that again? That God would bring redemption and healing, but there is not a desire for it. There is not a repentance among the people. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine, they gash themselves and they rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. So this metaphor of the dove is an interesting one. I don't know if you've had much interactions with dove. I, doves, I surely haven't had a lot of interaction with doves, but fowl generally are not the smartest creatures in God's creation. Uh, some animals that God have made are, are quite intelligent, uh, but birds generally don't have a keen sense of awareness. They often do foolish things. Uh, if you don't believe it, come over to my house and hang out in the backyard as we watch our chickens uh, try to destroy themselves uh, illogically. Uh, we, we build this wonderful coop for them. We feed them daily, and still they try to escape and run away into the neighbor's yard, and they've got dogs, and there's all sorts of hazards in the world, and I, I sometimes wonder how chickens survive at all in the wild. Uh, I'm, I'm imagining that doves are sort of like that. They just sort of wander around. They don't have a great sense of self-preservation, uh, and Israel is acting foolishly in this manner. They're described as a dove wandering around aimlessly, not recognizing the threats that are on the north and the threats that are to the south of them. Rather than staying close to Yahweh, their sanctuary, their protection, Israel has drawn near to those who would feast upon them. They have attempted to make treaties with two nations, that one of which in the past has enslaved them and one of which in the near future will indeed take over their lands and rip their inheritance from them. Egypt and Assyria are the two nations identified by name. Despite having every reason for confidence in Yahweh, the faith of those in the north that God will protect them and guard them as his people is so weak that they're running to countries that don't even care for Israel, but would only exploit and even conquer them. The seriousness of violating the covenantal promises of exclusive reliance upon God should not be overlooked here. When you are God's, you are to trust first and primarily in God. No one else in your life is to have the kind of reverence and trust that God has. We, some trust in chariots, says the book of Titus, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Our hope and our security is not to be in our bank account. It's not to be in our current government. It's not to be in some potential future government. It's to be in the Lord our God. And the North was forgetting that fact. Not only do they appeal to these foreign powers for help in a political sense, but they flirt with their false gods as well. Notice the mention here of gashing themselves, which indicates that they were falling into the faulty worship of the, of the false god Baal. In 1 Kings 18, you can read about Elijah's showdown with the prophets of Baal. You might recall that when the prophets of Baal could not get their god to respond in any sort of physical, meaningful way, that they cried out louder to their God. They, they sang songs to him. They marched around in circles and eventually they got so desperate they began to do something that was common in Baal worship. They took blades and they cut their own arms and allowed their own blood to spill out on their altars as a sort of self-sacrifice to Baal. Did Baal respond? He did not because there is no Baal. Not a true Baal, at least. Baal is just a false god that man has created for himself, nothing more than an empty idol. And so here we see indication that those in the north, because they thought that maybe they could get something from this other deity, Baal, they had begun to even gash themselves and follow these self-destructive practices of the, their neighbors. 
How is Israel speaking lies against Yahweh? They are doing so by such gross mis misrepresentation of the covenant. They're saying, we are God's people, and then they run off and they worship other gods. We are God's people, but then rather than trust Yahweh, they put their trust in foreign powers. They are misrepresenting the covenant people. They are obeying him in name only and not in practice. In verses 14 through 15, they do not cry out to God. They would cry out in prayer and petition if they were thinking of what Leviticus had taught them to do in times of difficulty. But instead, they wail out like senseless beasts, more inclined to complain and lament than to actually ask God for an intervention of help and power. In verse 13, woe and destruction are described as being upon them. But even in this expose that God is using to show them their sin, God uses some terms here that still provide a ray of hope, a sliver of hope for these people. He says, I will bring them down. In other words, he will humble them. I will spread over them my net. It makes me think of the refrain that my banner, uh, his banner over me is love. That these doves who would go off and destroy themselves, they want freedom. They think they know what is best for themselves, but to preserve them, he will throw a net upon these doves. He will bring them in and he will... He will secure them, even if it means they lose some of their freedom. So there's still a hope for some who live in the northern kingdom. He says, I will discipline them. That word is a word that is specifically used for someone that you care about. It is much preferable to the woe and destruction mentioned in verse 13 because the intent of true discipline is to improve the object of that discipline through a shaping consequence. You teach through a consequence. So when God talks about his church, his forgiven new covenant church who does not have to earn their way to heaven. When he talks about them in the book of Hebrews, he talks about them like his sons and daughters. And he speaks of himself like a father who at times does need to discipline his children to teach them the truth and to bring them back in line and to help them to understand the seriousness of their sins. And so God is pointing forward to a better covenant here. The covenant that they are in is a covenant that brings wrath and consequence upon them when they break the covenant. But there is still the covenant of grace beneath and behind this Old Testament covenant, a covenant promise that was made in the garden when God said that through the seed of Eve, the serpent's head would be crushed um, and that this, the, the heel of the seed of Eve would be bruised. We know that he was speaking of Jesus in that time. So there is still a sliver of hope for these people, but we need to talk about one more metaphor before we conclude the day. The metaphor of the treacherous bow reveals that Israel has committed dishonesty against Yahweh. Not only have uh, they been foolish in their conduct, not only have they given way to their lustful passions, but this third metaphor shows that they have been dishonest in the way that they've interacted with their God. Verse 16, they return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes, princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. Now, what exactly is a treacherous bow? Picture this. Picture that you are in the throes of battle as an Israelite. The enemy is advancing before you, but you are thankful. You're thankful because you have a quiver full of arrows and you have a long bow to defend yourself with. You knock an arrow into your hand. You straighten your arm, your lead arm. You, you brace yourself for the pull and you begin to pull on that string. But just before you're able to reach full draw, the string snaps. All the arrows in your quiver are now useless. Your enemy is approaching quickly and you have no time to secure another weapon. What appeared to be an asset 
to you in that story I just shared proved to be a liability. A, a treacherous bow is one that not only fails when you need it most, but can often cause you great damage when that string snaps or when the, when the, uh, the, the arrow that is knocked in flings off to the side and you end up hitting fr uh, a friendly uh, ally instead of hitting somebody that you were trying to, uh, trying to defeat in battle. The northern kingdom has proved a similar disappointment to Yahweh. In appearance, they are a religious people. In appearance, they are those who on the outside give the impression of devotion and holiness to God. But when, faithless, when faithfulness is important, the northern Israelites do not stand and deliver. When things get difficult, their vows of devotion have proved to be deceptive lies. Now the illustration doesn't fit the scenario in Israel perfectly. In the metaphor, the user of the treacherous bow does not know it is faulty and on the verge of failure. God is never surprised and has always known of Israel's vulnerability and unreliability. In fact, God will eventually use that very lack of faith as positive proof that any significant covenant between Yahweh and His creation will need to depend solely on Yahweh if it has hopes of enduring. But the principle being communicated stands. When religious devotion to God is nothing more than a stage prop, it is a faith that has no power. 2 Timothy 3, 1-5 in the New Testament reads this, But understand that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, and without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. As Paul describes in Timothy, and as James also reinforces in, in his small letter, devotion in name alone is no devotion at all. The God who carefully reveals these guilty truths about Israel is the God who knows all things. He cannot be deceived. He will not forsake justice to let people off the hook. We are always in the view of a God who knows all things. Therefore, it is impossible to keep one's sin hidden. We are laid bare before Him. To attempt to lie and keep the truth from God really only amounts to an attempt to lie to ourselves. We're infinitely more likely to fool ourselves than we'll ever be likely to fool God. The sovereignty of God is a very weighty doctrine, friends. On the one hand, it might be terrifying to, for a man to learn that there is a God above him who sees the depth of his heart, that understands every hidden secret, that has a record of every sin that that man has ever committed. That could be a terror to a man's heart. Every one of us has something to hide from the Lord. He is a holy judge. We are guilty sinners. His knowledge of our sin means that those sins will certainly be dealt with. David is the one who wrote Psalm 139 that we read this morning in our call to worship passage. Where can I go? You formed me and you know me. There is nowhere I can hide from you, O God. And yet David is the same one who committed adultery when his troops were away. He is the same one who thought he could devise a way to avoid the shame of his sin. And instead, he multiplied his guilt by causing the death of his faithful soldier, Uriah. His, he experienced a similar exposure to what Israel is going through here when Nathan the prophet approached him and, and described to him a scenario where a man had lost his only precious ewe. And David was angered by this at the, at the greedy landowner who had sacrificed this man's one lamb for his own party. 
until Nathan turned upon him and said, you are that man. You have taken what belonged to Uriah when you had wives of your own, when you had been blessed abundantly by the Lord God. And through that failure, God has delivered through the pen of that same David another psalm, Psalm 51, that teaches us so much about the nature and the importance of repentance. On the one hand, the doctrine of God's sovereignty is terrifying to us because there is nowhere to hide from him. But on the other hand, the fact that God knows also serves to highlight one of the most wonderful aspects of the free salvation that he has secured for his elect. God knows every detail, every hidden secret in your heart, he knows it, and yet he chooses to love you anyway. Is that not an overwhelming comfort to the sinner who has no power to overcome his own sin? How much are our own personal relationships hindered by the fact that to be known is to be exposed? Since we know what we're hiding, we have great anxieties that those who currently approve of us only do so because they do not know the depth of who we really are. If the truth about us is exposed, would they still receive us or would they turn their backs on us? Who among us is not worried about these things? But the knowledge of God is mightier than the knowledge of man. So too is the love of God, mightier than the love of man. For he knows who his people are and how sinful we are, and yet he loves us still. Despite ourselves, Christians are subject to the love of a steadfast and a faithful God. The fact that God has declared he doesn't forget any sin at all is now understood by the Christian in a different light because he has told us that our sins and our iniquities, if we have trusted in Christ, they've been dealt with in full. They have been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He has handled the wrath of God on our behalf. And what does he do to our sin now? He remembers them no more. That doesn't mean that God has become selectively ignorant and can just put them out of his mind. It means that he does not count them against us for they have already been counted upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ, his son. God knows, and to those who have come to understand the grace of God, it is a comfort to us that we are finally fully known and yet loved despite our sin. Because we are sinful men, we too will be led away by our passions. We too will be foolish. We too will be dishonest about the state of our heart. We will deceive but the love of God is merciful and is given freely. It is not something that we must earn, church. We come today to rejoice, and we can rejoice because we didn't come here to, to bring a great offering to the table to show God that we deserve his love this week. We came with hearts filled with gratitude, knowing that our place next to his throne was already secured by our brother Jesus on the, on the cross, that he gave his life for us so that we might come without guilt without condemnation upon our shoulders, and we might dwell in the presence of the living God who knows all things and has brought us near so that we, with our meager and tiny minds, might know him in his grandeur. And so, friends, let us not fall into the pitfalls of thinking that we can deceive our God. When you spend time in prayer this week, remember that you're praying to a God that is learning nothing about you in your prayers. He's not discovering things. But nonetheless, all that he knows, he wants you to tell him. He wants you to tr trust him to such a degree that you're willing to say, to verbalize to your God, I know you know this about me. 
And although I can't conceive of why, I know you love me anyway. Pray to him with a, with a, an, a, a mind that understands his omniscience and rejoices in it. Appreciate that he has decreed to love sinners like us. That, that because he needs nothing from us, he doesn't have to require anything from us. That he can provide the righteousness with which we will be clothed. Do not let your heart be drawn away by lesser pitiful loves as the Israelites had. We don't want to fall into that same pitfall that's happening all around us today where people say, yes, I believe in Jesus and they go forward in a moment of, of passion. But then all of the shiny things of the world begin to grab their attention and their affection and they monopolize a person's time. And before you know it, that seed which seemed like it was grabbing purchase begins to be choked out by the things of the world. Roots are never grown, and that little sproutling never grows to maturity to bear fruit. God, we want to be a fruitful people to our Lord, don't we? We want to bear a fruit of repentance. We want to be obedient to Him. But we also get to rejoice this morning that that fruit that we want to bear to Him is in no way the price of admission to heaven. It is in no way the thing that secures our love for the Lord God. The thing that secures our love for Him is His first and primary love for us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace and we are humbled to know you and to be loved by you, Lord God. May we learn from uh, this Old Testament book of Hosea, which points in so many ways toward a newer and a better covenant, Lord God. As, as we learn about the Old Covenant, it, it sometimes grieves me to think that, that people had to live under that kind of a expectation and had to constantly be unable to fulfill the law and had to constantly be grieved by their sin. But Lord, we are reminded that we as, as people of the new covenant, we're grieved at times by our sin too, but for completely different reasons. We're grieved because we know that the God who loves us and will always love us deserves better than what we have to give. And so we come not to offer a righteousness of our own, but to offer you what you have given to us, the righteousness of Christ imputed to our account. And so in some strange way, our worship to you is, is adequate. It is pleasing to you. It is what you desire. So Father, help us to walk in the faith that you have given to us. Help us to live in the truth that sets us free from our desire to depend upon ourselves and to save ourselves. Father, help us to rejoice in the fact that we are yours by the blood of the Lamb. We're grateful for your knowledge. Help us to know you as best we can in Jesus' name. Amen.